scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Second reading, verses 27 to 31. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down to him, for dominion belong, will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Thanks for that reading, Katie. Uh, let me add my welcome to Ken. My name's Rod, and uh, we're thinking about our mission statement, as Ken has already mentioned. It's the one that you see as you come into our building uh, to know Christ and to make him known. And every year for about 15 years now, uh, we have looked at this at the start of the year in January. And you might think, well, why keep revisiting that? We should know that statement by now, and I'm sure many of you do. But the reason we do it is twofold. One, Firstly, that we refocus ourselves, as Ken's already mentioned too, it's a great time of the year to think about things. We often come up with New Year's resolutions, um, but often they're related to exercise or eating healthily. Uh, these, this is a spiritual recalibration that we're focusing on as we think about our mission statement again. But secondly, um, a statement can just be a mother motherhood thing that is just known, but doesn't really have any pull on our heart. Uh, we can know something, but not really be invested in that. And so we don't really want you just to be okay uh, with our mission statement. We want you to be invested in it, to own it for yourself, and to really want to live that out this year. And so we're going to be thinking about our mission statement to know Christ, to make him known through the grid of Psalm 22 uh, tonight. We've just had read. So let me pray for us that God will help us to that end uh, as we look at his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedom to be able to gather, uh, for your word given to us that reveals your heart uh, for all people. And Lord, we pray tonight that you might challenge us afresh, that you might help us to see uh, your desire for our growth in our own life, for a comprehension that grows of your grace to us, but also a desire to share that with others. And so we ask this evening that you might uh, continue to work in us by your spirit uh, that we might uh, not only know these things but seek to live them out in the year ahead for we ask this in Christ's name amen well whatever the rights or the wrongs of the Vietnam War and there were many uh, greater problems were created at the very end for the Vietnamese when the Americans decided to withdraw in 1975 
Some Americans felt the same about pulling out of Vietnam as some of the French had 20 years earlier in 1954. The French had been very involved in the country and many of the local Vietnamese had backed the French regime until they decided to withdraw. But for the French military, uh, many were left upset, deeply upset, as they started to exit on their ships, conscious that they were leaving behind those that had backed their regime who would now be exposed to the hostilities of those that were opposed to them. And so there were a number of the Vietnamese that swam out to their ships as they were leaving and begged to be taken with, the, with them. Don't abandon us, they said. Take us with you. But they refused to do so and they were left to face what would come. And a similar phenomenon happened in 1975 with the Americans. You see, for many of the Vietnamese that had um, backed their Saigon regime in the south against the Viet Cong in the north, it came to a moment at the end as the Americans announced they were going where there was great chaos in Saigon. They were all too aware that the Americans were leaving them behind. And so the embassy uh, in Saigon was surrounded, as you can see in that photo of the time. Huge walls around the embassy, razor wire in parts of it. And people were clambering, tens of thousands, trying to get into the compound as the final American helicopters landed and took out U.S. troops and other citizens that were there out onto ships and away. And there they were, crying and pleading to be taken, trying to climb over the walls, holding out their passports, saying, take us with you. But again, they were abandoned. And for many of them, they describe this end of the war, this loss, as a great defeat. Many of their family members would die. Some of them would get asylum in the U.S., but many would be left to the reprisals that followed. They were left despite their pleas. And you see, the cry of abandonment is often a desperate, heartfelt one, which is so aching and heartbreaking for those who are facing and the person who is able to save, that has the power to do something, but has turned away from them. And this is the theme that we see in the opening verse of Psalm 22. It's that cry of desolation, which will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, as we'll see. But I want us to think through this psalm tonight as it applies in the light of our mission statement. I want to ask the question of us, uh, what does knowing Christ and making him known involve? As we consider this psalm and what it teaches us, what can we learn about what it is to know Christ and also to make him known? Well, the first answer to that question is this. Appealing to God. To know Christ, we need to grasp that we need to appeal to God. Have a look again at what King David records in verses 1 to 5. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. 
You see the urgency here of David's words as he speaks in this way, particularly these first couple of verses, this cry of abandonment to God in the midst of persecution that he's facing. Now, we know in David's life, we don't know specifically the context of Psalm 22, but we know in the first part of his life, he was often hounded by Saul, who was the king, and his army, chased down throughout Israel because Saul saw him as a threat to his kingship. And of course, later, even when David became king and was enthroned in Jerusalem, he had the difficult phase in his life where his son Absalom created a coup in the capital and took control and he was forced to flee from his son and his son's army. And so David knew what it was to face situation after situation where he was just overwhelmed by the opposition that surrounded him. And so many of his psalms pick up this theme of persecution and the need for God's deliverance. And in verse 2, David is seeking God's attention. It's as if God has forgotten him, that God might remember his cause, that he might hear him and awake. Now, it's not some lapse of faith on David's part here. It's not even a criticism of God. It's a sense in which he is disoriented. God's familiar, protective presence seems to have been withdrawn from him while the enemy closes in. And so he cries out to God for help. He acknowledges that the only one that he can go to that can rescue him is God. And so in verses 3 to 5, did you notice that David moves from his cry for God's attention to appealing to God's character? It's on the basis of God's character that he might help David, his holiness, his faithfulness. And so he looks back to past experiences of others who had received God's help. And in so doing, he's reminding God of his faithfulness. Remember what you have done in the past for your people. Do it again for me. He's aware that he has the power. He is the one enthroned, as David said, the holy one who can meet the needs of his people. But actually, as we read these opening verses of Psalm 22, as much as they relate to the life of David, the author, there's a sense in which their true fulfillment can only be found in Christ. There are things going on here that are far greater than those incidents that unfolded in David's life. There's nothing that fully accounts for the descriptions here, even with the opposition that he faced. You see, God never abandoned David. He never faced that ultimately in his life. Although he once faced a possible stoning, that was about as far as it got. No, we need to grasp that David spoke prophetically here in Psalm 22, just as the Apostle Peter said in Acts 2 of another of his psalms, he spoke to the crowd saying, being therefore a prophet, David foresaw and spoke of the Christ. And I guess no Christian can actually read this psalm without being vividly reminded of Jesus' death on the cross. And the humility of Christ who willingly suffered in our place. What we realize as we hear those words from verse 1, as they came from the mouth of Jesus on the cross, is that Jesus truly was abandoned for us. In Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus cries out from the cross in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, here is the, the cry of a truly righteous sufferer 
one far greater than David, who was abandoned for us so that we might not be. I've been rereading a biography of Bob Dylan, uh, which I never finished a few years ago. I'm sure many of you have heard of this American singer-songwriter whose early life was actually characterized by a fairly godless outlook, despite his Jewish heritage. Um, his life was fairly messy until he became a Christian in 1979, and his next two albums in that year and the year following uh, were all about his new faith. And at his concerts, he would uh, speak to uh, the crowd about what he believed. And in one of them in 1986, he introduced his song this way, speaking about a famous playwright, an American playwright named Tennessee Williams, and likening him to Jesus. He said to the crowd, Tennessee Williams led a pretty drastic life. He died all by himself in a New York hotel room without a friend in the world. Another man died like that. This last song is all about him, my hero. I'm going to sing about him right now when they came for him in the garden. You see, Dylan highlights there how Jesus was abandoned by his own disciples in the garden of Gethsemane just before he went to the cross. But what Dylan didn't express so well there is that there was a far greater abandonment by the Father who turned his face away as Jesus died, as our sin was taken upon him and as the Father's wrath was poured out on his Son. This abandonment was far greater than the failure of his flawed disciples. Now, as we apply that most heavy of moments to ourselves, we need to realize today that to know Christ deeply is to not face the abandonment that he faced. We will not be forsaken by God the Father because of what Jesus did in our place. You know, even as the disciples were being prepared by Jesus uh, for his death and then his resurrection and ascension, he comforted them in John 13 and 14 and said, look, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to send another comforter or counselor or advocate to be with you so that you're not alone, referring to the Holy Spirit. And that's also why um, following his resurrection, he could say at the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew's gospel, surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. And promises his presence with his people through the work of the Holy Spirit, never to be abandoned by the Father. That is the great joy of those who are in Christ because they have trusted in one who was abandoned for them. But there's a second thing to grasp in terms of knowing Christ from this passage in Psalm 22. It brings me to the second answer, calling for God's deliverance. Calling for God's deliverance. So notice again what David records in verses 16 to 19. He writes, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, be not far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. In verses 13, uh, 12 and 13 here, David is painting a picture 
of the strong closing in and circling the weak, the many attacking the one, if you like. And this image that he pictures is one of powerful animals attacking their weak prey. And so he speaks about bulls and lions and dogs later in verse 16. But all these pictures are a metaphor for human actions against him. And so again, in David's context, perhaps he's thinking about Saul's troops that are surrounding him yet again. But notice how David describes himself in his weakness here. He sees his utter desperateness that he must be saved from outside help. He is at the mercy of his persecutors. And so he describes himself as being poured out like water, that his heart melts, that his strength is gone, that his death, it just seems imminent. It's not a wonder then that from verses 19 to 21, he returns to that theme that came at the end of the first section, verse 11, and he calls for God's help. Not only is he appealing that God might remember him, but he acknowledges that the only person that can deliver him is God. He's in desperate need. Without God's help, there is no hope. Now, like the first section that we considered, reading these words from David's viewpoint really only give us a taste again. They're, they're far heightened if we understand their true fulfillment in Jesus. Again, there's just no incident in the life of David that can fully take in this description because this is not a description of a man that is ill this is a picture of an execution from the cry of abandonment in verse one to the hurling of insults in verses seven and eight to the predictions of pierced feet and hands verse 16 to the casting of lots to the dividing of his clothes in verse 18 this is arguably the greatest prophetic passage in the Old Testament, perhaps bar Isaiah 53, to speak of Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. Each of these actions is fulfilled in the Gospels as we read about Jesus' death. The Jewish religious leaders, as they mock him, even those who are crucified with him are hurling insults. The Roman soldiers who pierce his hands and feet and cast lots for his clothing what we realize is that Christ was abandoned and therefore faced death for us. He was not delivered from what was ahead. We know that he cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me, but it was never removed. He was delivered over to face this agony. And as we apply the harrowing events of Christ's crucifixion to our own lives, we have to realize that the reason that Jesus was not delivered at that point was so that we would be. See, this is the point again. Though people turned around, around Jesus, they bayed for his blood like bulls and lions, he was sacrificed. No one rescued him. Indeed, he couldn't be rescued if he were to pay for our sins. Our punishment fell on this righteous one so that we, the undeserving sinners, might be delivered. And so for a person to truly know Christ today is to know this deliverance, to have grasped God's grace shown towards them, so undeserved as it is, to know this rescue of them. And I think we so often to grasp struggle to grasp fully this amazing rescue that we've received if we've repented and placed our trust in Christ. 
because we were truly dead in sin, helpless, desperate. Unless somebody reached down to us, we were without hope. What's it like to be in that predicament? Well, on January the 12th, 2010, uh, there was a 16-year-old girl named Darlene Etienne. She was studying in her cousin's hillside house in Port-au-Prince when the 7.0 earthquake in Haiti struck. The building that she was in collapsed on top of her, completely crumbled. Fifteen days later, a man passing by heard her cries from several feet under the rubble. Fifteen days. Within hours, rescuers had dug a four-foot-deep, two-and-a-half-foot-wide trench to get to her. She was jammed under a piece of metal. When they finally brought her to the surface, they said she looked like a ghost. She was completely covered in white dust from the crumbling of the building. Her eyes were sunken. And as she spoke with reporters later, she said she had been conscious the whole time and she'd been screaming and pleading for 15 days. And then somebody heard her. And miraculously, they reached down into the rubble, into that mess and brought her out. She was saved. Life given back. I mean, this is what Jesus does for a person. He saves us from certain death that will come to us because of our sin, because of our rejection of his rule. And see, just like Darlene, we're in this terrible predicament in our natural state. We can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. There'll never be a good work or a good thing that you say that will ever make you worthy of God's rescue. There's no way you can earn your way to be worthy of receiving his help. But in Christ, he reaches down to us and he takes the undeserving and pulls them out. That is grace. We need a rescuer just like that. We need to be gripped by the grace that God has shown us in the Lord Jesus. Realize that only through him do we not perish. Jesus was delivered unto death so that we might be delivered from it. And that brings me to a third and final answer to this question. As we pivot from thinking about knowing Christ more wholly to making Christ known to those around us. And so the final answer is declaring God's rule to all. Declaring God's rule to everyone. Notice what David says towards the end of the psalm, verse 23 and 24. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. See, in verse 23 here, David is calling on anyone who fears the Lord to praise and honor and revere him, especially the descendants of Jacob or Israel, God's chosen covenant people of the Old Testament. However, it's verse 24 that gives the reason for such praise. God has heard David's cry and has helped him, has saved him. But from verse 27 onwards, David foresees God being honored by more than just a group of Israelites. It's not just about the one nation. He envisages God's reign extending to the ends of the earth, all nations being included. So notice what he says from verse 27. 
all the ends of the earth will remember. They will turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Again, this is far greater than anything David experienced in his lifetime. He enjoyed a reign over a larger kingdom than anyone in Israel's history bar his son Solomon. That was the peak. After that, their kingdom shrunk and shrunk until it was nothing. In fact, the promises made to David of a descendant who would rule over an eternal kingdom in 2 Samuel 7 always pointed forward to Jesus, the great descendant, the far greater one that was a descendant in the line of David. And so again, this brings to fulfillment more fully when we understand this final section in the light of Christ, who was raised by God the Father and who now reigns at his right hand in heaven. And so having spoken about Jesus being the one who was abandoned and sacrificed for us, we might think that the words of verse 24 could not apply to Jesus. And yet the son, we're told, was clearly heard by the father in his cry of abandonment. And though he was not delivered from a cruel death on the cross, death could not hold him down. He was raised on the third day. He's triumphant. And that's why we celebrate every Easter Sunday that Christ is risen and rules. Not only does Jesus fulfill verse 24 as the afflicted one, but he is the one who reigns, verses 27 to 29, and every knee will bow before him one day. Coming back to the life of Bob Dylan, uh, the two tours that followed those so-called Christian albums in 79 and 80 had him evangelizing, as I said, to his audiences between songs. And uh, many of his fans hated this because they didn't share his passion for Jesus. And there was much uh, focus on him at the time, lots of interviews by journalists. And he even appeared in Australia on his concert tour in 1980. And an Australian journalist got to him and asked him all these questions about, well, what's this thing about Jesus now? And he said this in part, Christianity is making Christ the Lord of your life. You're talking about making Christ the King, the Lord of your life, the Master of all things. You're also talking about the resurrected Christ. You're not talking about some dead man who had a bunch of good ideas who was nailed to the tree. Jesus is Lord, every knee shall bow. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? But of course, he was paraphrasing the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what God's people should do, declare the rule of his son and so as we apply this final section of the psalm i want you to see in verses 30 and 31 that you're included that we are part of the conclusion of this psalm have a look again verse 30 posterity will serve him future generations will be told about the lord they will proclaim his righteousness declaring to a people yet unborn he has done it. You see, to make Christ known, to make his rule known to our generation and to all the generations will follow is the task of God's people. This phrase at the end here anticipates the preaching of the gospel for all the centuries that would follow. The psalm that began with the cry of abandonment on the cross finishes with the words, he has done it. It's an echo of Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. He has completed the work of salvation. And so this work needs to be heard by our peers, by our children, by our grandchildren, by our great-grandchildren. 
Generations yet unborn must hear this message. It must keep ringing out. So says David prophetically. Why? Because we don't want to see anyone abandoned to their sin and their rejection of the one hope that they have. We want them to understand that there is a saviour in the Lord Jesus. And so there's a great task before God's people. As we apply this to ourselves this week, this year, I want you to reflect for a moment with me on the opportunities that will exist uh, for you as an individual, for us collectively as a church this year. Now, collectively, let me start there, uh, that we're going to continue as a church to prayerfully, financially support mission partners who we have partnered with for a number of years, like we heard about this evening with Bangladesh. Continue to stand with those who are on the front line holding out the word of life to those in places where they have very little opportunity to hear the good news. We'll continue to do that. You can be part of that as you pray, as you give, as you think about these that are serving, that have gone out from us. Collectively still, we can think more locally here in the Illawarra. That, you know, there are over 300,000 people in the Illawarra. It's estimated between 3 and 5% of them are in a church on Sunday. There are tens and tens of thousands of people in the Illawarra alone who are yet to bow the knee to Jesus. There is a massive need in the community around us to hear this good news. And we'll have opportunities this year to do that. We're going to be running Christianity Explored courses that you might invite your friends to. We'll have evangelistic events and services here at the event uh, at the church. There'll be men's events and women's events and so on, so that you might bring your friend perhaps to hear for the first time or perhaps for the final time as they make a decision and consider Christ their Lord too. But I want to say to you, the opportunities you will have as an individual will be far greater again. Evangelism's like an iceberg. What's above the surface is the smallest part, one night. That's the events, if you like, at the church. But the weight that is under the water is the individual witness that you have at in your workplace, with your neighbour over the fence, with that family member who doesn't seem interested when you raise Jesus with them, with that friend that you have had for many years. There's going to be so many opportunities this year for you to share your story about how God has worked in your life and made this incredible change through trusting in his son. And I want you to think with optimism about all the opportunities because of the power of that message. It's not because of your brilliance or how well or how poorly we explain the gospel. God's not waiting for any of us to become Billy Graham before he can use us. He's just wanting us to be faithful, to hold out the good news of Jesus, crucified, dead, buried, raised again to life, ascended and ruling on high. And to know that God will be at work in applying that message to their hearts. We simply have to be faithful. The result is not in our hands. It's God who does the work of drawing people to himself as his Holy Spirit works to convict them and helps them to grasp his love for them in the giving of his son. Now, I know it's hard. I know often we can lose heart because we're in a very comfortable society where people feel they have no need of God. Perhaps you feel, even as you think now, momentarily, you're surrounded by people at work or in your family or elsewhere that really have very little interest, that you've tried, and they just don't want to hear it. Be encouraged. 
you don't know what God is doing. He is always at work. The fruit may be happening even as you speak, as we speak now. We don't know what God is going to do. Let me give you one example from history as an encouragement in that regard. It was January 6, 1850 in England. It was a freezing cold winter's day, massive snowstorm, and it was a Sunday. People were trying to go to church, those who were going to brave the cold. Amongst those who were bothering was a young man who was 15 years old. He was planning to go to his regular church, but he was getting so hit in the cold of the snow that he decided he would just go into the first church he could find and get in the door. He went into a small Methodist church where there was 15 people. The tiny church, they'd been so discouraged in the years previous, they'd seen very few people come to trust in Jesus. The guy speaking that day was a lay preacher who only occasionally spoke. He picked out one or two verses and spoke. Nothing amazing seemed to happen in the service. The young man didn't make any comment at the end and they all shuffled off on their way home. But in the midst of that service, that 15-year-old had a life-changing encounter with God. He understood God's grace for the first time. People had no idea what had taken place. In fact, it was many years later before they had any clue that any of this happened. Only later did they learn that this 15-year-old had gone on to speak to tens of thousands and see thousands and thousands of people trust in Jesus. But the young man's name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the most famous Baptist pastors of the 19th century who went on to lead a massive church in London. You don't know what God is doing, the fruit that he is producing. God is always at work. And so as we look out at the Illawarra this year, we've got to see that the fields are white for harvest, that there are people that God is going to be at work drawing to himself this year and that you will be the instrument that he uses for that to happen. It's a great privilege to be part of that. But I want to put it to you this evening that that is not going to happen in your life unless you are growing in your knowledge of Jesus. If we are growing as Christ's disciples then it will overflow from us to share this good news that is changing our life. But if we're not growing in our knowledge of Jesus, it's unlikely that we're going to be bold enough to share that good news with others. And so that's why that mission statement on the wall is more than a few words and a motherhood statement. It's about a whole pursuit of life. That I want to grow this year as a Christian. I want to pray for my friends and neighbours and work colleagues that God might open doors so that I can share with them. Because who knows what things he might do in 2021. Will you pray with me? Let's commit this to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace, that you have reached down to us in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that through him we can have new life as we turn away from our sin and back to you in faith, that you can cleanse us and give us a fresh start, that we might live for you. And as part of that, we want to share this hope that we now enjoy. Lord, for all those tonight who know that great hope of being in Christ, being part of your family, Lord, give us the courage and the boldness to share this year. Help us to see the importance 
of this message ringing out from us, from our church collectively, but from each of us as individuals. Help us this year to serve you, to share the hope that we have. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.